Today's coffee connection is Carolyn Costable Hemming, who's one of our most dedicated long-term research ambassadors. She's a professor of German at the University of North Texas, Denton. My name is Hanni Geist. Welcome to Coffee Connections. I had the opportunity to chat with Carolyn about her path from focusing her studies on chemistry to graduating with a PhD in German. Carolyn spent time in Germany and specifically in Berlin in the 1990s, and she shares her unique experience during these tumultuous times. Some of her experiences are reminiscent of the movie Goodbye Lenin. As a research ambassador, she has a lot of experience advising researchers and students on funding applications. During our conversation, she shares valuable tips for success. And this week's travel suggestions are Leipzig and Marbach. Because of the valuable content, this episode is a bit longer. For the minutes of some relevant parts, check out the show notes. And now, have a listen. I'm Carol Ann Kostabile Hemming. I'm a professor of German in the Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures at the University of North Texas, which is in Denton, Texas. We are not in the same space, obviously, and currently the travel restrictions wouldn't even allow us to go to Germany. But if we had this conversation at a German cafe, what would you order? I would definitely order a Milch cafe. And if I could find it, I would probably order my favorite Kuchen, which is a Treubles Kuchen. Oh, you have to explain that. I don't even know what that is. What is, what is that? It's a, a Swabian specialty. And I think it's kind of like Johannisbeeren or something. It's not a sweet cake. It's, it's more a dense cake. Uh, and, and I kind of like sour more than sweet. So it's perfect with a nice cup of coffee. Yeah, I, I do like those berries. They're really nice and tart. I remember my grandma had the yellow and the, or the white and the red ones in her backyard. And I always like those. And it's something you don't find in the U.S. either, so that, that makes it even more special. You are a German professor now, but take me back to your first experience with German and why you got interested in Germany. It is kind of an interesting story. I started taking German when I started college, and I, when I entered college, I actually was a chemistry major, planned to study chemistry and go on to medical school. But I guess I was kind of precocious even at that age. And I knew that if I didn't get into med school or if I changed my mind, that I would always go on to graduate study. And back in the 1980s, lots of research was done in Germany and lots of publications were actually published in German. And so German was a required language for graduate level study in chemistry. So that was why I started it. My university had a special summer program where we went to Freiburg and we used the, uh, the facilities of um, Wayne State University's junior year in Freiburg program. And for six weeks, I went with a faculty member, a graduate student, and then fellow undergraduates. And we did the entire second year of German in an immersion setting. And I fell in love with Germany and that was it. I never looked back. Do you remember what it was specifically initially what interested you? I just had such a fabulous time there in, in Germany. Um, the Freiburg is, is one of the most beautiful cities in Germany, I think, and the people were so friendly. I had the opportunity to travel. I did things I never thought that I would be able to do. And I picked For up example? 
Well, I had grown up in a small town in Northeast Pennsylvania, and you know, the furthest we had ever traveled was, was to the Jersey Shore. The thought of traveling internationally never had crossed our minds. We didn't have that kind of money or anything. So just being in Europe was exciting. I, I was able to go to Switzerland. We went to Basel. I, I went to Munich and to Salzburg by train. So those were all things that I had never, ever done before. And I, I found learning German to be pretty easy. I had studied Spanish in high school and done really well with that. So I liked learning languages and I was good at it. And just being able to talk to Germans uh, in German was great. And there was another aspect to it. Back in the 80s, this was 1982, very little English was spoken in Germany and really throughout the rest of the world. So my housing was in one of the dorms from the University of Freiburg, but my, my Mitbewohner were all international students. And I remember meeting students from Greece and from Turkey and from Iran, as well as from some other European countries. The common language for everybody actually ended up being German. As poor as our German may have been at that point, we had to communicate in German. And so that was an experience that, you know, I couldn't replicate anywhere else. Now it's the other way around. Now you have to sometimes really make an effort to speak German as an English speaker because everyone speaks English and the common language in the lab, for example, is English. Yeah, I, I know. And, and I know my students who study abroad now, they don't have the same kind of experience that I have. And I, I think that's a shame. So you said you studied chemistry and you were in grad school and then you went to Germany and got interested. What happened after you studied in Freiburg then, especially shifting careers, it seems like? Well, I, I had uh, gotten B's and C's in chemistry and A's in German. And at some point I realized that, you know, who's going to hire me to mix chemicals if I can only get it right 70 or 80% of the time? You want somebody who's really good at it. So I decided to focus on what, what I seem to be good at. So my sophomore year, I, I took a variety of German courses and then I did my junior year abroad in Munich. So I had an, the opportunity to spend an entire year in Germany and in Europe, Western Europe at that time. And I returned as a senior and I, my language skills were advanced enough that I actually started my graduate degree while I was a senior. So I, I started master's level work as a senior, which was kind of exciting as well. And so then what happened afterwards? How did your professional career develop after that? I, um, so I, I graduated uh, with my bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania, and I stayed on a, an additional year to finish my master's degree. And then I went to Washington University in St. Louis for my PhD. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to spend another semester in Germany doing research for my dissertation. And that was in 1990. And that was when I also had my first DAD funding. And so I remember 
so I was the first time I was in the US was as an au pair, then as, as an exchange student, then as a full-time master's student. And every time I, it was a little easier, but it was also different, of course, because I went to different states. How was it for you the first time? And then uh, every time you went also with culture shock and maybe how you kind of immersed yourself from the first time to then later on as a graduate student? Uh, when I did my junior year, I was part of the Wayne State junior year in, in Munich program. And it was a very large program. I think we had around 90 students. So we were divided into groups. We all had to take different language tests and things like that. And I had tested high enough so that I could actually take courses at the university. Other students, some students took courses just within that were designed specifically for us. I did a, I did a mixture. So I had the opportunity to have a lot of experiences um, and, and meet a lot of Germans and interact with a lot of Germans. The mid eighties was an interesting time because that was when the Cold War was kind of starting to feel kind of hot as the United States and the Soviet Union were sort of ramping up and stationing missiles all over Europe. So it was a, it was a really interesting, interesting time but I had the opportunity to take a course. It was a political science course. And I don't remember the exact name of the course, but it was on essentially East Germany. So the German Democratic Republic. And there were several of us from the group who took this course and the professor who was lecturing found out about us Americans. And he thought that that was so cool that we were taking this course that he invited us to a special luncheon in his office. And that was where I, I sort of really started to learn about this other Germany and that stuck with me. And so I, when I went on to do graduate work, my dissertation was on East German literature. And I actually had the opportunity to live in East Berlin in the fall of 1990. So I got there in September when it, East Berlin was still the capital of the German Democratic Republic. And I left in December when it was just a united Berlin, a city in a united Germany. So I, I had those experiences. And they've impacted my life. They've, I've always, no matter what, I, what research I conduct, I always kind of end up going back to East German topics or the questions about unification and how how the country has changed and how issues surrounding unification still impact the way, the way Germany is today. Where did you actually stay in East Berlin? I had a, a, a one room apartment. It was very similar to the kind of thing I had when I was, a, when I was an undergrad in Munich in Friedrichsfelde, so, which is pretty far into East Berlin. It's near, um, it's near the Tierpark, so the East Berlin Zoo, and near uh, sort of Lichtenberg. I don't know if, if we talked about that before, but I grew up in Mazan, so that's why I also asked. Oh, I didn't, I did not know that. So yeah, so it, for an American, it was, it, I was pretty far <laughs> into the East, uh, which itself was, was an interesting experience. I mean, my my apartment had no telephone. This was 1990. There was one telephone sort of in the building that everybody could use. Uh, there was the, the consum down the, down the street. Uh, 
not, it, it was a very sort of residential area. Uh, so very- can you, can you explain, I know what a consum is, but uh, can you explain that to anyone who's not familiar with the uh, East German lingo? Um, so the consum was the, the sort of standard uh, grocery store that, that you had. And I remember, um, you know, you asked me earlier about culture shock and, and I, I don't ever really remember having culture shock when I went to Germany. I always seem to have culture shock when I come back. Um, I don't know why that is. I think I, I, I miss certain things about Germany too much. But in East Germany, there were a couple of things like standing in line outside the grocery store um, because there were no shopping carts. You waited until somebody came out with a shopping cart and, and then you went in. Um, not so it's it's for a different reason but people now line up in front of grocery stores again yeah yeah that, that that is that is very true we are sort of we are sort of back to that but that was one thing i remembered and i i remember also um that because it was the fall there was a constant turnover of products most of the east german products were were disappearing and west german products were coming in so the the images for anyone who's seen the film Goodbye Lenin and Alex goes into the grocery store looking for Spreewaldgurken and he can't find them. Uh, I, I remember things like that where things were constantly changing. Every time you went into the grocery store, there was something new that you hadn't seen before. Yeah, I, as a German teacher, I was just a teacher for two years, but I did use the movie and I do think that it's it's actually really good for, for students to see because it does reflect really what happened back then. Did you, I mean, in, in retrospect, of course, history is like you, you actually see and you can reflect on how important this was, but as a young student, did you reflect on it and did you realize how big this was and for you to experience it in Berlin and East Berlin? I, I think I did. So if when I think back to, and it's interesting you asked me this because one of the courses I taught this semester is on the Berlin Wall. And so I've been reliving a lot of those memories this semester. In 1989, I was completing my comprehensive exam. So I was already in the dissertation writing phase, so to speak, and I was writing on an East German author who was a, a living East German author. And so um, as all of the protests started happening in the East, that I remember being riveted to the TV. And I, I distinctly remember things like the protests in China in June of 1989 and, and the East German head of state, commending the Chinese government for the brutal crackdown on demonstrators. And I remember thinking what's gonna happen in East Germany as more and more people took to the streets. Is it gonna be violent? Are we gonna see what happened in China repeated? And it didn't happen. And when the wall fell and you know everybody called it then the peaceful revolution, it was really quite, it was quite amazing and quite historic. So I got to Germany, I ended up in Munich in February. And so the, the news was constantly full of, of the buildup to the unification process. And then I got to be there for the unification celebration on um, October 3rd. And, and that was historic. I was born in 1963. So uh, 
two years, almost two years after the wall had been built, and I never thought that I would see a united Germany in my lifetime. And now we've had a united Germany longer than there was a divided Germany, in, at least in my lifetime. So that, that was pretty historic. I remember realizing that I was there where history was being made. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you, because sometimes you only really, you can reflect on it a few months or years after, and you realize only after that it was really the historic moment and that just what happened was, was really pivotal. Did you have that as, as you were in those moments or was it really, a, you reflected, you were able to reflect on it afterwards? I think what I reflected on afterwards is that there were there was a lot of stuff going on that that I was less than maybe less than conscious of. You know, it's it's one thing to be I was there for three months and I, I had to essentially get all of the dissertation research done in those three months so that I could so that I could write it. So I was the typical sort of graduate student with my nose in a book. I mean, you know, from from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. I was basically in, in, in the library or in an archive or something and and it was only afterwards when I got home where I was kind of like wow there were a lot of there were a lot of public events and conversations that I probably could have attended that I didn't just because I was I was sort of singularly focused on getting the dissertation research done on um, on October 2nd or yeah, October 2nd, there was an event in the Gorky Theater with a number of key figures, one of them being Volker Braun, who was the author that I was writing on. So I do remember going to, to that event. But as a result of that, Unter den Linden was so crowded that you could no longer make it to the Brandenburg Gate. So I wasn't at the Brandenburg Gate for the, um, for the unification ceremony I was actually on Alexanderplatz instead which was sort of the second big venue but that that's kind of that's kind of what I what I remember and I, I also think that there are certain things that I became aware of much later so I had a fellowship the reason why I was in east in the east to begin with was I had a, a fellowship an IREX fellowship from the International Research and Exchanges Board and at that time, that was the funding organization that, that funded essentially research and study in, in the Eastern Bloc countries. But you had to be approved by the country that you wanted to go to. And, you know, I don't know exactly what they knew about me, but it was clear that they were interested in people who were positively disposed towards East Germany. And prior to that, I had attended some conferences with some noted scholars from East Germany. And, uh, you know, later it was revealed the kinds of connections that those scholars had. And so it's clear that, that information was known about me that I didn't realize was known about me at the time. So you have a very um, interesting perspective as an American really spending time in both the former East and the West. Can you describe like what it felt like for you living and working as a student in both of those um, areas, I guess? 
Ooh, that's a that's a tough question. I mean, I I ended up like I said, the the early '80s was an interesting time in in Germany. I ended up reading a lot of philosophy. I had a course on Marx, and so I I developed a lot of sort of leftist ideas, which I think was probably another reason why I was a prime candidate for study in the East. You know, it's been so long. It's been it's a probably long. it's pro- it's probably also very hard to um, to really name those things. But you did say that you didn't really have culture shock coming to Germany, but then you did feel a sense of culture shock coming back to the U.S. Do you remember specifically what struck you when you came back to the U.S. that was different and things that you missed about Germany? Well, it's it's kind of interesting because one of the things I miss about Germany, we've got an awful lot of now, which is time. One of the things that I love about Germany is the fact that most things are closed on Sundays. And so that you that you get out of the hamster wheel and you take some time to, you know, go on a nice long walk or you go out for cafe and kuchen or you go to a museum. There's a pace of life here in the United States that's just much faster that um, that I've decided I don't like. I prefer the pace in Germany more. Now, given the fact that most things are closed right now, we're getting a big dose of that. Um, and there's been a lot of talk in the news media about how people have been slowing down and, and spending more time together and, and, and things like that. So that's one of the things. I remember right after I came back from my junior year in Munich, being on the campus at the University of Pennsylvania and just being freaked out by the fact that everybody was speaking English. I wasn't used to hearing that much English around me. I think when I went to Germany the first time and every time after that, I was just really open to having a new experience and really trying to embrace what German life is like. And even now when I go, and I go almost every year, so the pandemic has ruined my research plans for this summer, but uh, as soon as I step off the plane, I just feel like I'm home. It's Germany's a second home for me, and I think it I think it always will be. Shifting a little bit gears, we are lucky to have you as a research ambassador in our DAD research ambassador program. For anyone who's not familiar with that, what is that? Um, why are you, why are you a DAD research ambassador? And then maybe specifically, what do you do as a research ambassador? So DAD research ambassadors are um, former fellowship holders who are scattered across the entire United States who help the DAD uh, promote its programs. And so I'm located here in Texas. And one of the things that I do is I hold regular information sessions on my campus for primarily for undergraduate and graduate students to inform them about the different kinds of funding available through the DAD. But I also view myself as an ambassador really for the whole research landscape in Germany, making people aware of how many opportunities there are um, for for research and study in Germany and, and the types of collaborations that are possible. So I became a research ambassador in 2011, and I've been doing it ever since. It's, 
it's something that I really enjoy. I, I love talking about Germany, in case you can't tell by this interview. And um, I have, uh, I'm very fortunate here at the University of North Texas because we have an office and I have a colleague from English who runs this office for nationally competitive scholarships. So the university is very interested in promoting international exchange and research among undergraduate and graduate students as well as among faculty. And so he and I actually uh, team up in giving uh, the presentations and um, anyone who applies for a DAD grant, he always connects them with me. And I've worked with a variety of students in a variety of disciplines on helping them with their essays. Um, I've also talked with faculty on campus who are writing letters of recommendation for students applying to sort of help guide them in their support. And I've been really fortunate that I've had two young ambassadors in the time that I've been here in Texas. And so having a young ambassador, I get the student perspective as well. So students always want to know, can you really live in Germany on X hundred euros a month? And I always say yes, but they don't believe me. So when I have a young ambassador, a student who's, who's actually done that in Germany, it becomes, it becomes a little bit more believable for students. Yeah, I always have to hear in the Bay Area, I always have to clarify how much an apartment costs, because if I just say how much you receive in funding, they would think you can't even get a room for that. So I always have to clarify how much it costs to get a room on average, of course, and how much it costs to go to the grocery store, which is a lot less expensive than what it is here in the United States. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, of course, always get the question, like, what, what is your suggestion? What do I need to do to be successful since you've submitted successful applications yourself, but you're also a research ambassador been for a number of years. For someone who is interested in applying, a few points that make you stick out to be a successful candidate for DAD funding, but of course that translates to any kind of funding. Well, what I, what I try to point out to students is that the, the funds that DAD receives, they're federal funds. And so essentially it's German taxpayer money. I tell the students to think about the fact, why should a German taxpayer invest in you? What, what are they going to get out of it? What is the benefit of your research project for not just you and your, your project and your personal career, but how does it benefit the field more broadly? And then I always talk about getting them to think about why do you have to do this project in Germany? Why can't you do this project here in Texas? Why can't you do the project in Iceland? Why can't you do it in South America? Why does it have to be Germany? Really emphasize the fact that what you are doing can only be done in Germany. And also emphasizing if you don't get the funding, what impact that has on your project sort of, so what won't happen? Those are kinds of, kind of the, the two pieces. But really to, to emphasize that, you know, this, this has to be something of value, not just for the individual applicant, but for the research partners, um, for, for the other institution, for the other country as well. For your research, we talked about that before, it is crucial for you to be in Marbach because some of the 
sources, while they're digitalized, they're not available if you're outside of the archive. So for you, it is important to be there. And it, it from just a content perspective, it makes a lot of sense. But for someone who's maybe not focused on German studies, do you also advise those students and researchers? And what would you tell them it's very similar. So um, we have a lot of students who are interested in the RISE program, for instance. And so I, I talk to them a lot about, okay, you've got a really interesting project, but really, why do you need to do the project in Germany? Right? Explain I what the RISE, the RISE program is. Oh, the, um, oh gosh. You're the DAD person. <laughs> Research internships in and science. and engineering. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, so these internship programs, I, I, I try to get the students to think about, you know, why do you have to be with this research collaborative? What, why does it have to happen at that university or with this group of people? Why can't you carry out your project here? And I, I mean, sometimes the projects can be carried out here. So then what is the value added of having this sort of international collaboration in research or what what different perspective is there uh, in Germany. I really try to get applicants to think about what is the uniqueness about Germany and how does that uniqueness of Germany connect to the uniqueness of their of their project. And I think that's what that's the key to a successful a successful application. Now I will say that I've had probably better luck placing humanities people than um, the sciences people, the sciences applicants, but we have had, we have had some, some success in the science field as well. It's one thing that is, that is really important is the relationship, I think, between the applicants and, and their, their mentors at their home institutions. If a student is working with a faculty member here in the US and that faculty member doesn't have research connections in Germany, I think it's harder for those kinds of applicants to make the connection to Germany in a way that, that really convinces um, it, the review boards of the validity and the value of, of the project. I think those those students who work with researchers who have themselves either connections to Germany or done research in Germany are, are much better able to, to convey that. Um, you know, we talked earlier about language and I think one of the things that becomes harder for me as a German professor is conveying the value of, of being able to, to speak German. Um, most DAD grants, it's, it's not required. And I point out to the students that, you know, at some point, something is gonna go wrong. It's gonna be the middle of the night and there's gonna be a problem in your lab and you're gonna need somebody to help you. And that person is probably not going to be very fluent in English. And so you're gonna have to be able to communicate with them in another language. And I think that, if students don't have connections to faculty who have these, these international research experiences, it's much harder for them to understand the value of that international experience and then also to convey in their applications that they understand that value and that that is necessary for their, for their success. What are 
questions that you regularly get that the answers you may be able to share here as well? The most common question has to be, I'm majoring in X, are there, are, are there programs in Germany on that? And my answer is always yes. I do my information sessions, I actually usually do them right around the deadline for some of the, the applications because I want students to be thinking ahead. So when they find out that I'm doing the information session a week before the application deadline, they're kind of like, oh, but I can't do all of this in a week. And I say, you're not supposed to. So I think students have a difficult time. And, and this is where I think that the faculty mentor plays, plays a role too. We have so many databases that students can search to see, well, I'm into educational psychology. What programs are there in Germany? Well, there are multiple programs in Germany. So trying to sort of narrow that kind of information down, those are, those are the questions that I get most frequently. And those are the ones that are really hard for me to, to answer because I can't tell a student that, I mean, unless it's sort of in, in German or linguistics or literature, that you know the university in city x is better than the university in city y in, in your field i just don't know that that information so that that's the problem the question i get the most often and it's the it's the answer that i hate to give because it's usually yes you have to go and do the research i also get a lot of questions we have a fairly robust international student population and so i get a lot of questions about their eligibility for for DAD awards and so you know those questions I, I typically refer them to the the call for proposals and the eligibility requirements and then I always instruct them to just contact the DAD directly to get an answer to those questions because I know that that visa requirements and things change all the time yeah, and that's, that's good to refer them to the website. And then also for all the programs, we have the contact information for the program officer on our website. But what is not necessarily unique, but it's uh, different from some of the other grants that are available is that international students are eligible if they're full-time students here pursuing a program. And unlike some other funding, such as Fulbright, Right. Um, where students are not eligible if they are not U.S. citizens, this uh, the DAD funding is, and I think that in particular makes it really interesting for international students because their opportunities are so limited, mm -hmm. the opportunities that are offered through the United States. So we've, we've already spent a lot of time and I don't want to steal all of your time, but I want to get to a few of the fun questions that I have. Uh, one okay. is, what is your favorite place in Germany or favorite places? You've been so many times to Germany. I assume you have a few. Yeah, my favorite cities are, are Leipzig and Berlin. But apparently I'm, Leipzig is the new Berlin from what I yeah. felt. So why Leipzig for you? I think a lot of people know Berlin, but why is Leipzig a, a favorite city of yours? I think part of it has to do with it's becoming the, the new Berlin. So Berlin has become so international. It's hard to find any Germans there anymore, it seems. But one of the reasons is because I love books. And Leipzig has the Leipzig Book Fair, which this year unfortunately got canceled, but I had the opportunity to attend last year. 
And I had been, when I was on a Fulbright, I was able to attend too. So that's one of the reasons. Also, I think it's because it has to do with my connection to East Germany. And so, you know, the Leipzig is sort of the, the, the heart of the, the protest movement in the fall of, of 1989. So there's a connection there. But I really do love Mabach. Mabach is a very small place. And um, a very good friend of mine once said, uh, Mabach is wie eine Kurort für Germanisten. And so it's a place that I can go, yes, to access the archive, but it's a very peaceful place. And so it's, it's a place where I find I can think because all of the busyness of, you know, I'm at a major research institution, all of the busyness of that kind of academic life can't touch me there. As the German expert here in the U.S. and as the American in Germany, what would you like Germans to know about the U.S. and vice versa? So I hate the stereotyping. So, you know, it's kind of... I am married to a German and he, he's from Nordrhein-Westfalen and so they don't wear Lederhosen, for example, and they don't listen to the Umpa music and so, you know, Germany is not just Bavaria, is one perspective and, and I think what I want Germans to know about me as an American is that this sort of mainstream media politics that gets broadcast is not necessarily indicative of the way all Americans think and certainly not not the way I think. So for me it has to do with it has to do with stereotyping. Mm. Yeah, that's true. But I uh, I had to laugh when you mentioned Bavaria because that for me is coming from Berlin, I do feel exactly that like I will never have a dunder and I don't connect with the Bavarian style and the umpa music. That's just a different seems to me like a different world almost well being in texas you know there there are some interesting parallels though because you know texas is the lone star state and, and bavaria is freistadt bayern and so mm. the sort of tendency towards independence and being separate from the whole that i that i think is in common uh, they, they have in common but Yeah, I mean, quite honestly, my students always ask me, oh, are you going to the Oktoberfest celebration in such and such a town? It's like, no, <laughs> we just don't do that. No, I, I don't. But if you're in Berlin, for example, or anywhere in Germany in the summer, there are just really great beer gardens and just restaurants with tables outside. So I really enjoy that. But you would have to pay me to go to the Oktoberfest. I went when I did my junior year in Munich. I, I guess you had to. My bucket list and that was it. What is your favorite food from Germany? What do you, what do you eat when, you, when you're there that you really love? Brötchen. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, I just said to my husband this weekend, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to wait another year before I can have a Brötchen. I don't know if I can, if I can, if I can handle it but um yeah the the uh, all of the the baked goods because there's such variety that is certainly something i love the breads and and definitely a very german breakfast with rolls that's uh, that's definitely something that i miss is there something that you cook now that you're very german yourself and in, in many ways do you cook german dishes at home and if so which ones 
Not really. The German food that I like is kind of sort of everyday people food. I mean, we'll make some bratwurst every once in a while or some sauerkraut or something, but you know, basically the kind of pork roast or beef roast that we would have on a Sunday in Germany. I mean, I make the same kind of thing here. So for me, it's kind of run of the mill. Things that I really like to eat, like Spätzle or, or Maultasch and things like that, I don't even know how to make. I don't even attempt it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to do those things. That seems too complicated. Maybe it's not, but I've never tried. So if someone wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that best? Um, via email is the easiest way to, to reach me. And you also, since you are a research ambassador, you also have a profile on our DAD.org research ambassador website. And there's also a little blurb with your information and the, I'm not sure what email address is used. Um, actually, I think it's my university address. Okay. This was my coffee connection with Carol and Costable Hemming. If you want to get in touch, you can find Carol Ann's email in the show notes. All content is created and edited by me, Honey Geist. If you would like to get in touch with me, send an email to podcast at DAD.org. Stay safe, healthy, and well. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you at the next coffee break.